welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some of your anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, experiencing a moderate amount of anxiety about being a therapist. This podcast is a companion to part two of chapter four in the book. So, Dr. Smith, uh, we ended the last podcast uh, at addictions. And then in chapter four, you go on to describe helpers. Helpers include primary emotions and impulses, conscious-based emotions of shame and guilt and automatic thoughts. And nine, you list as primary emotions and impulses. Could you tell us a lot more about that, please? Okay, so you remember on that, that visual diagram that I painted in the, in the last podcast, and over on the right, there's that mirror of consciousness, and it looks like the instinctive mind has a lot of different ways that it uses to influence our conscious choices of behavior. And so if you think of these next EDPs are helpers, they're things that the instinctive mind is using to try to get our conscious decision-making to go in the direction that our instinctive mind thinks is gonna be good for us. So the first group of those are impulses, and I'm just gonna talk about impulses here, not primary emotions, that's, that's gonna come a little later. Impulses are when an idea pops into your mind that, hmm, I'd like to do such and such. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from your instinctive mind that thinks you ought to do such and such. And so in treatment, we may come to a point of, of helping the person realize that they don't have to do that. They don't have to follow an impulse. You don't have to take a drink or you don't have to hurt somebody. Then if we go to number 10, should we do that? or Sure, do you want to... conscious-based emotions, shame or guilt. Those are big ones. Yes, and if you read a lot of the literature, the literature doesn't make much of a difference between core values and beliefs, but they're really different. Uh, values, we'll have a whole chapter on this, but values are very hard to change and people feel very threatened if you suggest that their values aren't healthy. And yet, a lot of, a lot of our values are unhealthy. Like the, the, the guy who has to be a tough guy no matter what, and that often is, is maladaptive, it's dysfunctional. So the way the conscience works is when you go against your values, you feel shame and guilt, and when you go with your values, you feel pride. And that's a kind of a self-contained uh, reinforcement system. And so when we see inappropriate shame or guilt, for example, which is very, very common, that means that there's values underneath that. There are values that are causing that shame and guilt. So if we're going to be able to change the shame, you can't just do that directly. You're going to have to do something about the attitude or the value that's behind it. For example, if somebody feels ashamed of their body, let's say, 
then behind that is a value system that says your body has to be perfect in order for you to be lovable or, or whatever it is. And we're going to have to identify that value and work on changing that. And values are very, very challenging to change. A belief, for example, might be, uh, might be likes and dislikes. Those are easier to change. Or even a belief that something bad happened because, uh, let's say, that the parents got divorced because I did such and such. That's a belief. That's easier to change than a value then I'm fundamentally a bad person, that's really hard to change. So if we're, if we're going under the emotion and addressing the value, I wonder how effective would CBT be with that? As it's, long as we use it, I would say, with a okay, lot of cultural sensitivity. Yeah, at least CBT recognizes that there is such a thing as a core value. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so that really often does direct it in, in the right direction. My point here is just to recognize that when you see a problem related to shame or guilt, those are not primary feelings. Those are feelings that are generated in the cortex. They're not feelings that we share with uh, other mammals. They're rather special feelings, pride, uh, shame, and guilt. And those are indicators that we're dealing with something that that's, has to do with internalized values. Those feelings always come as a result of a judgment of some sort. So, so the point here really is that when you recognize guilt, shame, pride, you're dealing in the realm of values and making any changes in that area, you just know at the outset that it's, it's going to be hard work. And, and even if you make changes, it may take, uh, there may be relapse. It's pretty easy to get back to, let's say if you have low self-esteem, that, that there's a, an attitude <clears throat> internalized that you're not worth very much. Even if you start acting like a person who's worth quite a bit and feeling better, if a couple of bad things happen, you're going to go right back to that old feeling again. That's the way it, it relapses, where some of the emotional healing we're talking about is permanent and is uh, not subject to relapse, but these things usually are. Mm -hmm. And then values are handed down to us by our primary family members, by our primary culture. I imagine that what would make the work very difficult in the therapy room is that our patient would be feeling very oppressed by by those values and and that once out of the therapy room the patient would be subject once again to the pressure of of not being able to meet those values or respect the values imposed upon them by their family for instance and therefore they would return to the therapy room for yet another session with renewed feelings of shame it does sound like a really tall order but values are not as much imposed as they are eagerly soaked up. Yeah. Well, because why do children, what triggers values to be internalized? It's the, it's, it's attachment anxiety. It's the need to reinforce the attachment. Mm -hmm. well, um, you, you know, 15% of my caseload mm -hmm. in uh, Suffern is, uh, comprises people from the Hasidic community. Uh-huh. And they yeah. they are being ostracized yeah. or just are completely at odds. Yeah, their their personal truths with right. their communities. Yeah, you know what's fascinating is that that in the rest of the world, in the in the less developed world, those kinds of problems, where where culture is clashing with individual needs, is is kind of the bread and butter, and those problems we don't see so much in our culture. Right. It's it's. Uh, we're, I, we're so much more integrated. Yeah, I saw a physician the other day who's who was 
having anxiety attacks because he really didn't want to be a doctor, but his father told him he had to be a doctor. And, and you know, he was conflicted because he had internalized that you have to do what your father wants. Right. And at the same time, that's the last thing that he wanted to do. Right. So he was sabotaging himself in his job interviews. And mm. Okay. Eleven, automatic thoughts. Tell us a little bit about those, please. Okay. Well, so automatic thoughts, I mentioned before, uh, CBT calls them automatic thoughts and psychodynamic therapy calls them free associations. But it's useful to think that th thoughts often pop into your mind just for the purpose of steering your behavior. Automatic thoughts are also the source of all of the traditional defenses like projection and, and denial and things like that. And so one of the things that I think is really important to realize is that EDPs are defenses but the EDP is a much, 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 much broader th concept than traditional defenses. The defenses that Anna Freud named, those, those ones that I just mentioned, are all automatic thoughts. Those are ways that the mind comes up with to distort reality in order to get away from some uncomfortable emotion. But distorting your thoughts is only a tiny, tiny fraction of all of the different ways that the instinctive mind has of defending us against uncomfortable feelings. And especially in our culture, behavior, action, doing things, just do it. Doing is a much more powerful source of avoidant behaviors, of avoidance, than distortions of thinking. So it's, it is useful to think that when you hear irrational thinking, whatever kind it might be, if it's not coming from a judgment, then it's probably some automatic thought that is trying to direct us away from an uncomfortable feeling. And, and these are frequently pretty good indicators of what that feeling might be. By the time it comes up in the form of automatic thoughts, those are, those are often fairly easy to trace back to what they're about and what, the, what triggered them. And you state that when an, an automatic thought is subjected to intellectual testing, that unlike nonverbal schemas, they can change instantly when the evidence no longer supports them. My favorite example of that was, was a woman who had been terribly abused early in life, and she kept the conscious thought that her mother's schizophrenia was her fault. She didn't really evaluate it because the thought was just there, and she didn't really articulate it to herself, but it was there, and she blamed herself for her mother's illness and therefore therefore her own suffering was her fault and that kept her rage in check. And one day her father who had abandoned the family early in her life came back and mentioned to her that her mother had been hospitalized before she was born. She suddenly fell into an uncontrollable rage within seconds and when it all dissipated it finally became clear what, what had happened. But it was to me the, one of the most clear-cut instances where a th an, an idea had changed instantly when, when the evidence changed. And that's in such strong contrast to things like values, which don't change easily at all, even if, even if circumstances change. So, so it, was, it was really a, an interesting thing for me to observe at the same time as it led to being able to heal the, the anger, since now it was accessible in the form of an affect symptoms that we can recognize in the room? 
Okay, good. I, I'm going to explain a little bit. So, so, so far in this catalog, going back to the, to the last podcast even, uh, we've been talking about EDPs, uh, uh, entrenched dysfunctional patterns, because those are really the things that we work with in psychotherapy. And if you may have noticed that we, we've stayed away from diagnosis, we've stayed away from disorders, because disorders are really from the medical model, they're collections of symptoms, and maybe that's what people walk in the door with, but what we need to work with are the, are the ways people avoid uncomfortable feelings. Well, the section on symptoms is really about situations like depression where diagnosis really is relevant because people come with depression has a lot of changes in, in, in a person's biology. You know, we, we feel low, we don't feel like doing anything. We're low energy, it slows us down. And, and so using a diagnostic term like depression or anxiety is really relevant. It's meaningful. However, does psychotherapy take away depression? No. Does psychotherapy take away anxiety? No, it doesn't. What it does do is we help people to react in a healthier way to the things that are going on in their mind and their body that they don't have control over. So we're addressing the way people cope with depression and the way people cope with anxiety. And maybe in the long run, when you cope in a more healthy way, the depression starts to lift and the anxiety gets less uh, troublesome. So how you cope is really important, but we're not directly trying to cure those, those problems in themselves. But nonetheless, when a patient comes in the door and says, I'm feeling depressed or, or I'm, I'm terribly troubled with anxiety, you know, we'd be silly not to address those things uh, or at least how people cope with them. And one of the things that I tell people right from the outset is that what psychology has discovered in the last 30 years or so is the more you try to make those bad feelings go away, the worse they get. So mostly the key to coping with them better is, is to be able to accept that that's what your mind and body are doing. They're feeling depressed or anxious or something like that. And we need to acknowledge and accept those feelings, but not let them govern our behavior and our reactions. So that's kind of in a, in a nutshell, that's really where we're going here. So could you elaborate a little bit about depression? Interestingly, you write uh, about depression uh, of two different dynamics uh, that can occur with depression. In one dynamic, you write, the non-conscious problem solver tries to avoid the toxic feelings of helplessness imposed by circumstances by pursuing defeat and helplessness, thus turning passive to active. In the other, the strategy, the strategy is to avoid unacceptable anger at others by raging at the self. Okay, those are, those are two really kind of classic dynamics. One is, is identification with the aggressor where, where it is a very natural reaction for us to incorporate other people's negative attitudes towards the self and turn against the self. I'm a terrible person, I'm not worth anything and then act on that. And so that's, that's one thing, and it can sort of snowball into, uh, into real feelings of, of depression. 
And, and the other one is sort of the classic thing where, where depression is turning anger against the self, where, where somebody learned, met, let's say, in childhood that it wasn't safe to be angry, you'd, you'd better not, but anger is something we can't really control, and so instead it gets turned against the self. Again, I'm a terrible person, um, I'm, I'm not worth anything, uh, I need to be punished and and that kind of thing. So if, if 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 when we help a patient to understand why they're in that state, why they're feeling those things and how that started out as a way as something that was self-protective, then that gives them at least a a little bit of a handle on what's going on and it helps to gain some perspective over what's happening, to step outside oneself even though the depressed feelings are still there. So you say self-protective as a means, as an active strategy to avoid toxic feelings. That's right. And, and in that sense, so depression may be built in, it may be something that's automatic, even biological, but that too is, is ultimately a self-protective mechanism. There are several different kinds of self-protective mechanisms that all come under the umbrella of depression. So let's talk about how we help people with depression. It, it depends a little bit on what kind of depression, but I'd say the first thing that I think about is sort of education, is, is helping somebody put their depressed feelings in perspective and kind of understand where it came from and what it's about. So if, it's, if it looks like it's mainly a biological kind of depression, the kind that goes with uh, bipolar uh, uh, biology, where people have sometimes over-energized uh, periods and, and other periods where they can't get out of bed and they, and they feel very, very depressed. I might talk to them about, well, this is, this is your biology, so we're gonna have to try as best we can to help that with medication, and then beyond that, you're going to just need to accept that and to work on coping with it. So let's go on with what else can we do besides education with depression? Something that cognitive behavioral therapists have, have found and, and generated a lot of evidence for is that, that it's better not to spend your day in bed. It's better to make yourself get up and function and do things and take care of yourself and put on some clothes. And so that's, it's hard for a person who's depressed, depending on how severely but it, it's hard for them to do that, but it definitely is a, a positive, helpful thing to try to adopt, uh, fake it till you make it, to try to adopt a more positive, more active kind of stance. Which is a behavioral approach. That's right, and that has, that has some validity. And then, if it comes to, let's say, anger turned towards the self, we're going to want to encourage, over time, some direct expression of that anger, because when it comes out directly, then it's not going to have to be directed towards the self anymore. And the same thing when if, if it was, let's say it was the kind that had to do with turning passive into active, uh, turning being hurt into, uh, into something where you feel like you're an agent, you have agency, uh, then understanding that is going to help and making, making a conscious decision to act differently is going to help for that. And maybe some, some ability to change one's thinking about it to, when you understand it differently. Okay, and so now what of anxiety-based symptoms? 
So there are a lot of different uh, situations where anxiety is the predominant feeling, and those include anxiety itself, it includes panic attacks, it includes obsessive compulsive uh, problems, either you know obsessions where, where a person has ideas that pop into their mind that cause them anxiety, like, uh-oh, I might hurt somebody uh, accidentally without wanting to, and, and that may, might make a person very anxious or compulsions where a person, let's say, has to wash their hands 50 times a day because if they don't, they're going to feel very anxious. And, and even physical symptoms. So in, in the book, I'm including somatization, physical symptoms like, like pain or uh, when a, a person gets very worried that they have a disease. Let's say um, I'm worried that I might have AIDS or something like that. And that becomes a, a source of anxiety. Well, anxiety has a big biological component, and some people genetically are just predisposed to have more anxiety than other people. When that anxiety is a is biological predisposition, then it seems like the instinctive mind is just looking for some way to bind the anxiety in, in here and now life. It's And I've seen it where a person will have one thing that they're terribly anxious about, and then for, for some reason that problem gets cleared up. And then the, it's as if the anxiety doesn't know what to latch on to next, and then pretty soon it may even create something that's not a reason for anxiety at all, and the person realizes that whatever it is they're afraid of couldn't actually happen, but they're still afraid of it. So anxiety really seems to be a problem looking, or, or a, a feeling looking for a problem. And then once it latches onto a problem, then the person tends to focus on that problem, that issue. You know, I'm going to strain my back muscles and I'll, and I'll have back problems and I won't be, I'll be incapacitated, I won't be able to work, and oh my gosh, this is terrible. And that can just snowball into a huge, a huge uh, fear and anxiety. So would you have a client like this who, who shows up in your, in your therapy room and does not want to take benzodiazepines to address the anxiety and you you give them some psychoeducation explain to them that anxiety is unavoidable and is actually an instrument of survival and that it is a good thing not necessarily to be rid of becomes problematic when you get stuck in it and they say uh-huh yes okay then what? Because the kind of anxiety that you're describing and that I have encountered many times in my own sessions, it's like a piece of tape. You can't get rid of it. And it's not that you want to get rid of it, but then you're going to tell them what? Well, live with it, even if it's stuck on your nose or on your clothes? Absolutely. This is, this is really tough. So the, the first problem really is that everybody's initial instinct is, how can I get rid of this anxiety? How can I stop feeling this awful feeling? And it really is pretty terrible for people who are experiencing that. So there are some different ways. Sometimes if, if anxiety is really threatening to keep somebody from functioning, to it's going to interfere seriously in their ability to get along in life, that's when I may think about medication on a, either a temporary basis or something to carry in your pocket that will help you get through a particularly difficult moment. So I'm not a purist about this. What I tell people sometimes is that, you know, medication really isn't a great solution to this. The antidepressants take care of anxiety by suppressing all kinds of feelings. 
and people who are on antidepressants will say, I go to the movies and I don't cry anymore. So that's not such a great thing. And also over time, the brain does seem to compensate. And so antidepressants poop out and they stop being really effective. But then if you take them away, then all the emotions come back even more. There's a withdrawal. So that's not very satisfactory. And then the benzodiazepines that really take anxiety right away, they do a great job. They're addictive. They're addictive. And so pretty soon you're hooked on them. And guess what the withdrawal symptom is for benzodiazepines? It's excess anxiety. So medication is not really most of the time a great solution. If you look on the internet and, and you read people who've suffered from chronic anxiety and managed to conquer it, usually what's happened is after some years of trying really hard to get rid of it, they finally say, you know what, these medications just aren't helping me. I'm just going to learn to cope with it. And they do that then they start feeling better because when you don't focus on the anxiety, it does improve. I remember a, an interview I heard, Joan Baez, does that name mean anything to you? Of course. Okay, it does to us older people. Younger people haven't heard that she was a great folk singer and was a girlfriend of Bob Dylan and everybody's heard of Bob Dylan. Uh, Joan Baez did an interview on TV and she said that she had terrible, terrible stage fright so bad that she'd be doing a concert and she'd have to go backstage for five minutes to pull herself together and go back out and sing her concert. And so the, the interviewer said, well, what about now? What happened to the, the stage fright? And she said, oh, I, it's not a problem anymore. I've seen it too. It's anxiety may take years uh, to diminish, but it does. And so it's a tough thing to say to somebody who's really suffering from their anxiety in the here and now, and, it, and it's very painful. But the truth is, it may be that the best solution is really to keep on working at, at mindfulness, at distancing from the anxiety. I'll say a little bit about mindfulness, because we think about mindfulness these days as something that comes from Buddhism. But I think of mindfulness as something that comes from the first years of your life. Because think about what happens when a child is one or two and in a lot of distress, then you know, they cry and then mom comes or whoever the primary caregiver might be and says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, let me hold you. You're feeling so terrible. And so mom in, in understanding reflects back a point of view about the distress that is an outside perspective. I see you hurting, I understand you're hurting, and it's gonna be okay. And that's exactly what mindfulness is about, is stepping outside yourself, looking at yourself, and knowing that it's gonna be okay. So it may be Buddhism, but maybe Buddhists just discovered something that mothers have known all along. Either way, it's when you're feeling something like anxiety, you're inside it, you're inside yourself, you're focused on that bad feeling, and what helps is to be able to use your knowledge, use your another person to step outside yourself and to see it as kind of a wave of feeling, like surfing a wave. It's, it's gonna come, you're gonna feel the energy under your feet, it's gonna pass along and it'll break on the shore and it'll be done. So that's how I work with people with who suffer from anxiety, but I have to say, it is very distressing for a lot of people, and I don't have a magic answer.
Right, and so then the Buddhist psychologists would say that to match exactly what you just said, that it is a question of recognizing that the anxiety has arisen, allowing it to be, and trusting that it is impermanent, and like the wave will pass away. Mm -hmm. That trust is easier for people who've had a good experience in their childhood, because they've internalized what we call basic trust. They've internalized that sense of having a mom there who understands. People who've had a rougher time in early life may not have that, or maybe their distress is so intense that it disrupts that internalization and it's not available. And so for them, it may be a lot harder to access that sense of, of perspective, and they may need it from somebody outside themselves more. And sometimes, sometimes a therapist is a source of that kind of outside perspective. And I've seen situations where that did get internalized, where it wasn't really accessible before, and that may take years. It may take a long, long time for that to happen. And so then the attachment style, understanding what kind of attachment style the patient in the room had in those early years is is really important. It's very important. And that's why, you know, sadly, therapists do well and they're happier with people who are either securely attached or who have anxious, clingy attachment and the ones who are more distancers and, and, uh, and have avoidant attachment or disorganized attachment are a lot harder. They don't bond as easily with their therapist. And it's a sad thing that they, in a way, they have a harder time because the tools of therapy aren't as easy for them to use. So using our example of Jack in the beginning of our podcast, who's a rugged individualist, he might be a more difficult nut to crack, so to speak. Exactly. And that's why we couldn't just say, oh, come into my office and I'll, and I'll help you calm down. It's going to be all right. That would generate a lot of shame for him because his values say you're not supposed to do that. And, and so we have to use that sort of trick of saying, well, this is a procedure and, and, and we're, we're going to need you to participate in this procedure that's going to help you. And the procedure is coming in and having some sessions. And so he gets the support that he needs without having to admit to, to any weakness. Would, would it ultimately be effective to help Jack learn a different attachment style? It happens. It, it happens just by experience, by here and there experiencing that having somebody who understands you and, and cares actually makes a difference. So... I think that focusing on that in a conscious way doesn't really work so well. It's more, it just happens in the course of developing a relationship and, and working together. Mm -hmm. So the, the last defense mechanism that you mention in this fourth chapter is dissociation. So dissociation is, is really interesting because it's a way of not knowing things. And what's curious about it is that not knowing is exactly how the field of psychotherapy has generally approached dissociation. It's something that exists, and it was even there at the La Salpetriere where when Freud first encountered the idea that maybe 
hysterical symptoms were a result of trauma before he even started any kind of free association or, or psychotherapy. But to, to an amazing extent, people are not aware of dissociation. And I often see patients who have suffered from dissociation and they get diagnosed as anxious, they get diagnosed as depressed, all sorts of different things. Sort of like if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail because I think therapists don't know what to do about dissociation. Why? Because dissociation is something that's entirely automatic. It comes and it goes and nobody has control over it. You can't make it happen. At least most people can't. It is similar to hypnosis, but the, the common kind of dissociation is what you see on television when there's been a disaster and people are wandering around looking like zombies. Right. And why do they look like zombies? Because their feelings are compartmentalized somewhere else. It's as if they don't have any feelings. They just go about doing what they have to do. So that's a good example of dissociation. Dissociation is the mind's ability to split off and separate anything. And that can be feelings. It can be part of the body. It can be part of experience or memory. And when those things are split off there, it's like they're not there. And so it's quite an unusual phenomenon. And what do we do about dissociation? We create conditions where the mind is going to decide that it doesn't need to split that stuff off anymore. So a good, strong therapeutic relationship, a safe place to come and, and to talk and to experience things is, is the best way to, to get the mind to let go of dissociation and, and reincorporate whatever it is that's been pushed away. Right, so we're talking really about the reintegration of the dissected parts right. of the mind. Right. Now, how many times you've heard lots and lots of talk about PTSD, about post-traumatic stress disorder? How many times have you heard that most of the symptoms of PTSD are symptoms of dissociation? Many. Okay, good. So you're, you're with it, but that's not in a lot of the literature, and that there's nothing, very little in the diagnostic manual that says anything about dissociation, but the avoidance of memories that are associated with a trauma, uh, that's because if you reaccess the memories, maybe the feelings are gonna come back and they've been dissociated. Uh, yes, yeah, so we have hypervigilance, uh, we have flashbacks, and we have external pathways of uh, expression, anger, for instance. Mm -hmm. We have nightmares, uh, sleep dysregulation. Right, so, so like for example, so those flashbacks are, are pieces of dissociated material that pop back into consciousness briefly. It doesn't seem like that sort of consciousness is healing for whatever reason, even though remembering something that happened does lead to healing. So flashbacks are something a little bit special, but the hypervigilance is avoiding some experience that was, was very, very painful. Um, full of, of painful emotions. So dissociation is a natural kind of circuit breaker that allows us not to feel things that we're really not prepared to feel. And what therapy can do about that is help us to get to where we're prepared to feel those things and they get admitted back into consciousness. Right. I, I have found that internal family systems, IFS, is very useful uh, in working with uh, dissociation and just uh, identifying the different parts in which the mind fragmented during the traumatic event and seeing how those parts are interrelated and how they function to serve each other 
and ultimately to protect the whole organism of the person. Well, IFS was kind of invented in the, in the shadow of working with people with real dissociative identity disorder, multiple personalities, where, where there really are you know, selves with names who can, who can come out in, um, at, at different times. But you're right that people who've, who've had other kinds of trauma and maybe don't split to that extent, um, it still helps to identify different, um, uh, different functions within them as, as different parts. Right. I'll just give one more example that I've seen more lately is depersonalization and derealization. Those are another form of dissociation where people just get split off from their sense of self or their sense of, of reality, and that's extremely distressing. But the worst of it is that when people have that kind of feeling, they want to make it go away. And, and once again, the best treatment there is, is to accept it and to understand what's, what's going on and, and let it be. And eventually that too, that form of dissociation, usually uh, disappears. Right. So to conclude today's podcast, you write in the book that Essentially, all of these dysfunctional patterns, these defense mechanisms, however well-intended they may be, end up being dysfunctional. The variety of them may seem daunting, but that with some familiarity, the therapist will be prepared for anything treatable within psychotherapy. Right. And again, the main point here really is that psychotherapy is to help people cope with these kinds of, of symptoms rather than making the symptoms go away. So this concludes today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website, www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Well, thank you for listening, and we'll, we'll be here for the next podcast. So bye for now. Goodbye.